This is writer and game designer Robin DeLaws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pograin Press. Grab its new game, Time Watch, or any of its supplements at a 10% discount. For a limited time, use the voucher code TIMEHUT at the Pograin web store. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Exciting Monsters! Propaganda! Alejandro Yodorovsky! And Leveler! Of all the horrors, no horror horrifies more than meta-literary horror. Of all the card games, no one makes fun, fast-playing card games like our pals at Atlas Games. Those two inexorable forces come together in Atlas Games' new game, Lost in Relier. In which all the players are trapped in Lovecraft's story, The Call of Cthulhu. As you'd expect, there is no winner. But the last person left holding cards is definitely the loser. To promote Lost in Relier's release and to support friendly local game stores, Atlas brings you a special chance to pluck victory from the smoking ruins. Buy Lost in Relay at a brick-and-mortar game store and send a selfie to Atlas Games. In return, they'll mail you a special Canon Robin promo card. It's called Strange Laws Beyond Our Ken, and it shows the two of us summoning, well, something to either protect or destroy Chicago. I know which I'm picking. Buy Lost in Relay at your friendly local game store and take a selfie at the counter. Then go to atlas-games.com slash lostincardus to request your card. There's also a link in the show notes. As is traditional. Horrifically traditional. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. But inside the gaming hut, we have perhaps a miniature, but perhaps a fully-sized monster! Ah, monsters! A monster! There's a monster at the end of this segment. There is a monster at the end of this segment, and at the beginning of this segment, and throughout this segment, thanks to Patreon backer Dirk the Dice, who asks, what is the essential narrative element needed to make a monster generate excitement in a swords and sorcery setting? Um, should we begin by parsing his question to Helen back with the difference between swords and sorcery and regular fantasy? Or should we assume that Dirk just means F20 and move right through it? I think he was specific in, in saying that. So we need to uh, think, first of all, about how monsters work in sword and sorcery and uh, rather than other genres and then go from there. Right. So... Sword and sorcery, of course, that's your Conans, that's your Elrics, and... That's your Fawfords and or Graves Mouser. Yep. And your monsters uh, take a bigger role in those than they do, say, in high fantasy uh, or political fantasy. So often the whole point of something is you're going to a nasty place to fight a monster and uh, maybe rescue uh, uh, someone uh, pulchritudinous or in... Mayhap. Yeah, mayhap. Or, uh, you know, and you can gender flip the pulchritude. Uh, we're living in 2016. So, I'm sure Jirel of Jory rescued handsome men. In, exactly, yes. Uh, long before 2016. Yes, yeah. because she was great. Um, I think that the thing about monsters and swords and sorcery, in your Conans, in your Fawfords, even in your Elrics, the monster is a sort of an emanation of the thing about the world that our hero is there to stop. And in Conan, our hero is there not to stop 
a civilization, despite being a barbarian, but to stop the primordial, right? The things that are beneath and below and outside. He, he beats on cannibals and he beats on all kinds of things. And every once in a while, he beats a monster that he doesn't beat on, like in Tower of the Elephant. But the monster is something from the outside that is, that is there to be stopped in Fofford and Gray Mouser. The monster is the sort of unearthly cruelty or, uh, slimy, abjectness of the setting given form a lot of times, right? So I think the monster says something in a swords and sorcery story about the sort of thing that the the heroes are there to fight. And in uh, classic swords and sorcery, that thing is sorcery. And the the monster is arcane in a way Uh, in later swords and sorcery, a la Fofford, et cetera. Sorcery is more evenly distributed on the good guys and the bad guys side. So the monster is something else that is aberrant or wrong about the world and has to be stopped. And every now and again, the monster is just a sort of, you know, big monster that, that, you know, provides a sort of a note of excitement on the way to travelogue or pulchritude or whatever the actual goal of the story is. But I think most of your monsters are sort of Grendel's, right? They go right. back to Beowulf. And to pull uh, some concepts from uh, the beat analysis system, which appears in Hamlet's hit points and is soon to appear in a follow-up book called beating the story. The heroes in Sword and Sorcery are iconic heroes. Uh, They have a repeating structure. They tend to appear in a bunch of different adventures, whereas high fantasy heroes tend to undergo a transformational arc. An iconic hero, uh, like your Conans, your Faffords, your your Elrics, recapitulates an iconic ethos again and again and again. And so there is a... The stories feature a rise of disorder. Something happens that the iconic hero must deal with. And again, it seems paradoxical that Conan, your avatar of uh, barbarianism, is a being who brings order back to the world, but that's exactly what happens. These monsters are a threat to order. And then uh, each of these characters, in a way that is fundamental and specific to them, conquers that uh, disorder, at least temporarily, until, again, the next story comes along and disorder rises again in a new form. Now, in a role-playing context, that becomes a bit more complicated in that you've got an ensemble of heroes, and the uh, ensemble of heroes may each individually uh, be defined by their own iconic ethos, especially if you require the players to do that. Or you can require them to define a group iconic ethos. So, I am X, and I solve problems by doing why, and why is something fundamental about you. And guess what? Conveniently, in F20, you pick from a short list of options who you are fundamentally, and the rules support that. So uh, if you're a fighter, you bring order back to the world by fighting. If you're a magic user, you bring order back to the world by using magic. So it could just be that the inherent structure of your game rules that you're using already pretty much do this, but it is something that you can heighten by asking the players to create mission statements for their uh, characters that provide their particular take on what an elf bard is or a dwarven ranger, and then start to adjust or build the details of the monster in the story to reflect those mission statements so that the story can become one of dealing with that disorder by doing what is fundamentally you. So, uh, can pick a character with an iconic ethos and let's, uh, let's build a, 
an adventure story around that where the, the monster is the big boss at the end. Okay. Now, I, I think that rather than pick a, a existing fantasy character, because everyone can just go and read Gerald of Jory, we're not yep. going to be doing better than C.L. Moore this or any day. Let's take an iconic character who is not a swords and sorcery character, but let's briefly swords and sorcerify them and then pit them against a monster. So let us pit the mysterious and almost ethereally uh, otherworldly aquiline-nosed uh, magus Sherlock Holmes against a swords and sorcery monster. What, in his way, he goes out there with his magic, what is he trying to stop in the fantasy world as opposed to in the regular world of Professor Moriarty and various redheaded leaks? Well, his iconic ethos is he finds order from the disorder of detail and assembles the details together. So he is your deductive sorcerer. So this already suggests to us how Sherlock of Holmes mm -hmm. is going to uh, defeat monsters, which is that he's going to, along the way through the course of his adventure, uh, perhaps conveniently using a gumshoe uh, rule system, maybe. Maybe. Could be. <laughs> maybe. Hard to say. That he will find out what in uh, the esoteric is called the special means of dispatch, right? That, that he will mm -hmm. learn enough about the monster along the way to be able to defeat it at the end so that he will not need the, you know, occasionally he'll need the assistance of... Uh, of his squire. Yes, Sir Hamish. John of Watson, right, who, yes. uh, uh, you know, is, is a doughty fighter. Mm -hmm. But most of the time... Uh, he will find a uh, an exciting, fun uh, shortcut that allows him to destroy the monster at the end. So the uh, broader answer that we're getting from this, then, is to make the sword and sorcery monsters more exciting, is make them relate to the characters in some way that brings out their essential qualities that the players want to play. Exactly. And so, for example, let's say uh, that the countryside is being ravaged by a terrible hound. Mm -hmm. that, that's a crazy idea. I don't know where I came with that. Right. And then, I'm liking so, it. initially, the uh, disorder would rise in that uh, reports would come uh, to Sherlock of Holmes uh, from a distance that the uh, area was being ravaged by a, a hound. And so, then you have your initial scene where he goes and he uh, checks out the area uh, where the ravaging has occurred, and you, first of all, create something that has an emotional quality to it that will make the player or players want to uh, find and destroy the hound. Possibly someone pulchritudinous in danger. Uh, perhaps that. Or you could just see the, the result of their depredations and the harm that it's done to innocence. Young Baskerville the elf. Yes. And so then you go out and you find... Uh, you begin to track the hound, and, and uh, it's a mystery, so you want some sort of twist. You want the the hound to seem like one thing, like, for example, a hound. Right. <laughs> and then at the end, it turns out it's not a hound, it's something else. It's a demon. Yeah, it's a demon. That was summoned by the uh, evil butterfly-collecting magus who lives in the middle of the swamp. Right, and so then, uh, for in the Spoiler. case of... <laughs> yes. Uh, so in the case of uh, Sherlock of Holmes, you would then construct a series of different uh, scenes in which... He overcomes minor obstacles on the way to the Hound, and uh, along the way picks up bits of information. So, uh, if you just want there to be, uh, in a typical sword and sorcery story, it's not like Conan goes and fights six different monsters. No, he uh, fights just the one big the snake one. or whatever. Yeah, he's not getting a bunch of XP along the way. He's he's out to fight the snake, and so you could, you know, classically do that where, uh, you know, the whole evening is devoted to one particular monster. Or you could have other little things along the way where, you know, there's some bandits in the region and they kind of like the fact that there's 
a hound running around because it uh, scares off law enforcement. So, uh, or just, you know, you stumble onto a bandit's nest and have to negotiate your way out of it. And, oh, look, uh, they know a little bit about the hound because they have to run away from it as well. So the uh, that creature sort of a uh, sense of emotional uh, payoff and challenge and that every obstacle is about getting closer to and uh, more readily able to defeat uh, whatever the sword and sorcery monster is. So I think we have sort of two elements or maybe two linked elements that we're actually identifying. We've got the notion that the, the monster must be something that is uniquely suited for the hero, either the main player or the corpus of players acting as a single hero to take down both Fofford and the gray mouse are needed to stop this thing. Um, all of the players have to stop this thing. And which is why uh, providentially when Beowulf runs into Grendel, it turns out that's a monster that is susceptible to someone with super strength. And it wouldn't matter if Beowulf were the world's greatest swordsman because his sword would break apart on it. So he has to pull its arm off and that's good luck for us. But the, other thing that generates excitement is not just the something you value in danger, Hirat, uh, the beautiful elf Baskerville, whatever, but also the twist, right? The the, the change up. So the hound is is su- suitable for Sir Sherlock or, or Sherlock of Holmes because it is mysterious and it moves around in the night and it has to be tracked down and all of his powers need to be brought to finding it. And then the twist is it's a demon. In Be- in Grendel, the, in Beowulf, the twist is its mom is there and is even meaner. And so you have to have that narrative surprise element or else someone shows up and they say, well, here I am, Thagbar axe wielder. Look, it's an easel. It's a monster that can only be killed by being chopped. That is less exciting than I had thought at first. <laughs> and so you have to maybe provide a, 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 a twist or a turn, you know, some sort of other side of it. Yeah. That, um, the twist uh, always has to be even more interesting and fun yeah. than what you originally thought it was. And what you originally thought it was also has to be interesting and fun, right. just not as cool as the twist. Right. And the twist shouldn't hose the hero, but it should present a, a higher level of challenge and maybe a level of challenge that is uh, requires a different uh, skill set. So instead of being able to just tear Grendel's mom's arm off, he has to summon up the cool, which is a word that it actually appears in Beowulf, to go down into the, the 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 dungeon underneath the lake and and kill her there, and so that is the other thing that he has to do. He has to not just be brave enough to sit in here all night, but he also has to be brave enough to go down into the mire and uh, and kill Grendel's mom, and that's a big deal. Right. Uh, well, uh, one monster that we are always uh, focused on killing in uh, this podcast, though not always successfully, is the monster of the overlong segment. So I oh. think we can... What a twist! Th- ah, no, no, okay, well, we're going to have to go fight this other bigger monster, but we'll do it during the commercial, and then we'll come back for yet another triumphant, glory-bedecked, perhaps even gore-spattered segment. Mayhap. Do intervals between Ken's time machine segments leave you listless, bored, and itchy? Then you're in luck, because Time Watch, the wild and woolly gumshoe game of chrono-hopping adventure, has now blasted its way into our reality. Master of over-the-top, fast-paced fun, Kevin Culp collaborated with all twelve of his future selves to bring you a hefty, velociraptor-strewn tome packed with adventure. Published by the reality-maintaining overlords at Pelgrane Press. 
As Time Watch agents, you defend the time stream from... Radioactive cockroaches. Alternate reality robots. Apocalyptic anomalies. And human meddlers. Go back in time to help yourself in a fight. Thwart your foes by targeting their ancestors. Or gain a vital clue by borrowing a scroll from the Library of Alexandria. But watch out for paradoxes that may erase you from existence. Or worse. History isn't written by the victors. It's written by the people with the time machines. Recommended by one out of one time travelers. It's time to venture once more into the hut so dangerous, so mysterious that it isn't even a whole hut, but is only a corner. And that, of course, is the conspiracy corner. Because, Ken, 2016, among its many other uh, qualities... <laughs> you almost said virtues. <laughs> I, I, I almost did, but that would be the opposite of what I mean to say. Uh, and I had a, a, a copy specifically not to say the opposite of what I mean to say, because this is the year that conspiracy went mainstream. We may have to talk about conspiracies a lot more uh, for the next little while than, than we have in the past. And we've talked about it a fair bunch in the past. Yes. Yes, we have. So uh, I thought uh, for our uh, reintroduction of the conspiracy corner that we would uh, go back to some fundamentals. Uh, because there's been some uh, interesting, uh, though not virtuous, uh, developments in this realm as as well. And that is the realm of propaganda. And this is one of those classic topics that annoyingly begins with trying to figure out how to define the term. Mm -hmm. uh, because the term originally started out uh, not as a pejorative at all, but just uh, came from uh, ye old, good old Catholic Church. So in the uh, 1600s, the uh, church added a new layer of its its bureaucracy, as uh, Catholic churches are wont to do, and created the Congregatio de Propaganda Fide, the Congregation for Propagating the Faith. And, uh, and of course, uh, if you have a big, long Latin phrase, you just shorten that on up, and so you got the propaganda. And that was not thought as a bad thing. You had a faith. What you did with your faith was you propagated it, and that was well and good. Later, around the 1790s, uh, the term starts to uh, broaden out, and it's uh, used in other uh, secular things that people are propagating. But again, it's not until the mid-19th century that we start to see propaganda as being not just separate from other means of persuasion, but a somewhat sinister or underhanded way of uh, convincing people to do what you want in the political sphere. And can, do, can you shed any light on uh, how that became a pejorative uh, several hundred years after it first started being used? Well, it begins as a pejorative because they are using the phrase and part of the great era of anti-clericalism. The 19th century is the era where if you are socially progressive, broadly writ, which includes all manner of things that we think of as horribly retrograde now, but were relatively progressive in the 1800s, you were against the influence of the Catholic Church in government. And in order to sort of turn the Catholic Church's uh, reputation against it, you take something like the Congregation for Propaganda, which is just called propaganda in a lot of places, and you say, look, this propaganda that they are using is the same sort of thing that can be used for this other purpose, this non-religious purpose. So they're not doing something religious and spiritual by preaching the gospel, like Jesus said. They are involved in shady influence peddling and messing with people. And that is where the sort of bad light of propaganda comes from is the notion that because it is done by this class enemy or this social enemy, it is a bad thing. And that is sort of goes down now because 
Obviously, if you are on one side, your favorite cable channel is is news and information and education and getting the word out, and your disfavorite cable channel is propaganda, even though obviously they both use the exact same methodology that television news has used since the 1950s of presenting a short, easily grasped, highly visual narrative that purports to tell the whole truth and, of course, does no such thing because you can't get information in an eight-minute video segment. Right. Uh, if you want to get at the uh, meaning that I think people try to convey when they're talking about propaganda, and they're not just talking about the communications of the side I disagree with, mm-hmm. uh, I think what they're trying to get at is this is a form of communication that tries in an underhanded way to bypass uh, people's rational decision-making. But of course, the term rational decision-making uh, is itself highly fraught because uh, and indeed the word uh underhanded because obviously the one thing you don't say about the may day parade is that it was underhanded but on the other hand it's clearly propaganda uh yeah so we're forced to fall back on do we have anything better to go on then as we continue to discuss propaganda other than uh like pornography we know it when we see it um i think that the Sort of almost the sole actually practical definition of propaganda is that it presents one-sided information. Now, that information may be true or it may be false, but its one-sidedness indicates that it is designed to propagate a opinion. Now, you can cleverly or less cleverly present information in a one-sided way or present it in a seemingly two-sided way that actually undercuts the um uh, the interlocutor Galileo famously did that by having his dialogue on the uh on the heliocentric solar system uh be between a character named I forget the the good character but the bad character was named Simplissimo and that turned out to be a terrible idea because to get uh information for Simplissimo to say he cribbed stuff that the pope had written so bad idea don't do that Galileo but you can present, you know, the uh, the sort of the foil, the, the the guy who's whose job is to walk on your Juan Williams on Fox or your Pat Buchanan on CNN and get beaten up by the rest of the panel, or you can have your your more de- deliberate, just straight up look at our enemy, they're out there doing bad things type story, or you can have a full on Mayday parade. But the notion of one sidedness, I think, is the only useful or neutral measure of what is propaganda versus what is education or what is news or what is whatever else right right because then otherwise you're you're stuck with falling back on intent so mm-hmm. that you could use the definition of any information that is disseminated with the conscious desire that it be information warfare which implies that the propagandist is not necessarily entirely sincere in what they're presenting but again that gets you into a whole other philosophical um, a bunch of weeds. So, for example, not only the uh, biggest and most influential, but also the most relevant to Ken and Robin talk about stuff, example of propaganda is, of course, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Right. Uh, and so maybe you could quickly remind people of how that came to be and how it operated as information warfare. Protocols of the Elders of Zion is a sort of different sort of propaganda, what I guess is usually called black propaganda, where you present something that purports to be from your enemy and indicate that your enemy is plotting all manner of horrible things. And the protocols of the elders of Zion were uh, forged by a guy we think named Sergei Nilus, although he may have not done the actual writing. He may have just propagated it. Ha <laughs> ha. But uh, it took a, a philosophical dialogue 
called, I believe, Machiavelli in Hell that was written by a guy named Jolie and stripped out all the part about Machiavelli and put it in the mouths of the mythical elders of Zion, the secret masters of the Jewish race who met in a Prague cemetery to plan badness and doom for all of Western civilization. And he took that sort of plausible roguey Machiavelliness and then inserted a bunch of things that he thought would be terrible to plot, like kidnapping Christian babies and blowing up all the uh, underground uh, sewers and trains and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he put it all in a list and laid it out there and then released it saying, look at this, uh, a good, decent person has slipped me this inside dope from the uh, opposing ranks. This is what the Jews are up to. We can't trust them. And the protocols then become uh, disseminated, not just through Tsarist Russia, which is where Nihilus meant it to go, but everywhere in Europe. And it can still be bought openly on, you know, bookstalls in uh, Riyadh or Damascus and Tehran, or probably in London. And I'm certain if you dug around enough, you could find them anywhere else. And of course, you can download them if you're one of those internet uh, Nazis that we have nowadays. So the, the protocols sort of are created with the intent not of saying our side is good, but the intent of saying their side is evil and presenting it as though it comes from their side. Right. And that's one of the, I think it's, it's kind of useful to start breaking them, uh, you know, different uses of propaganda down into categories. And so uh, one of the purposes of propaganda, whether you are uh, working for a regime or to destabilize a regime, dividing people is one of the major purposes of uh, propaganda. So uh, finding a scapegoat, an out group uh, to sharpen people's outrage at uh, is, uh, you know, taking advantage, kind of hacking into uh, kind of the, the core programming of the human brain and using it for political purposes. Uh, if you're attempting to uh, attack or overthrow a regime, another purpose of propaganda is just to sow confusion, mm -hmm. to make people think that uh, everything is going crazy all at once, and uh, therefore uh, nothing can be relied upon. So that's sort of the uh, uh, an attack on reality, as it were. And uh, once you manage to use your uh, propaganda to become the regime, and your regime is a, uh, particularly if it's a tyrannical one, you get the sort of propaganda that exists to reinforce, to uh, cause people to want to accept the status quo, and uh, there we get into your whole realm of different uh, communist propagandas, of which the, you know, the main uh, surviving version is the quite Baroque and decadent form that you find in North Korea, which is, you know, uh, propaganda is basically the number one element of their uh, GDP. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because it's the only thing they do better than anyone else or with a, with a, with a certain, um, uh, with, with a certain, uh, flair, I guess. A Maybe certain, not a desperate conviction. Yes. That sells well to a, to an audience. Um, I would say that another thing we might want to talk about in terms of propaganda is I mean, there's, there's a couple of things. It's a fascinating thing because if you're interested in the way people perceive things, the way people think about things, which is an interesting thing to be interested in, then propaganda is super interesting. How many times can I say interesting? This you is just propaganda. Said it one more time. I'm so repeating interesting going. enough, and people are saying, "Wow, I didn't think this was interesting, but I guess it was." I guess it Ken was. Kept saying that over and over and over again. There are certain elements that keep showing up. The uh, raping of nuns is a standard piece of propaganda that was used even by Protestants uh, uh, in in warfare against other countries. So 
the the Germans in in Belgium famously carried on like Huns and and raped nuns and and murdered babies in in hospitals. And then we see in the Kuwait War, in the Gulf War, the notion that the Iraqi soldiers had stolen babies out of incubators and for reasons that perhaps beggar the imagination. And so this same little memeplex, this little nuggin of things that we are worried about, shows up in 1914 British propaganda and in 1991 American propaganda. And you you wouldn't think there'd be a lot in common with those two wars, those two military establishments, but there you go. This little bit of story happens. The other thing that I think is fun about propaganda is the degree to which it is integrated with the growth of psychology as a science and with advertising as a technique. And obviously propaganda becomes more effective if you have a mass media to promulgated in, which is why we generally consider the propaganda begins with the mass literacy of the 19th century, although obviously it goes back to, you know, the Emperor Thutmose carving, I totally won the Battle of Kadesh everywhere that he could get to on his march yes. back from Kadesh, which he lost. And, and the spread of Christianity <laughs> certainly speaks to being able to uh, wide-scale alter people's ideologies quite dramatically mm-hmm. uh, way before mass communications. And and certainly if you um, uh, want to argue special pleading that God and the Holy Spirit were on the side of one of them, note that the same thing happens with Buddhism and Islam and lots of other religions, that there is a methodology of religious persuasion that I think a lot of propagandists look at and say, gosh, if we could tap into that, how much better would that be? Other people would be doing all of our work for us. Right. And that gets to the, the fact that making extraordinary claims, you would think, would uh, work against your propaganda. But, of course, uh, getting back to psychology, if you were making a faith demand, the more cognitive effort it takes to agree with something, the more reward you get, uh, the more dopamine is released in your brain for uh, doing that. So, uh, again, the propaganda, it's appropriate that it started in uh, spreading a religion because in a way, uh, propaganda is a way of taking that template of how uh, people interact with their faiths and then uh, switching it and hooking it up to their feelings about uh, political leaders, whether they be uh, rebel leaders or uh, the head of whatever uh, government we're talking about. And again, North Korea, they've switched from <laughs> you know classic style uh, communist propaganda to uh, communist propaganda with a leader cult, like not not a figurative one, but one that uh, pitches the uh, the Kims as uh, literal demigods. Exactly. And so in that way, we have another one of those continuities that goes all the way back to the Egyptian pharaohs and the kings of Babylonia and Sumeria, who literally presented themselves as the interlocutors between the heavens and the earth. And without them, the Nile wouldn't flood or there wouldn't be uh, water for the crops in uh, the Tigris and Euphrates Valley. And they had to engage in these very specialized public rituals that were done up on the top of the ziggurat or out in front of everybody so that everyone could look and say, yep, I see that guy dressed in cloth of gold. That's why it's going to rain. Or at least that shows me that society is working correctly and the rain will come in a natural way. And even Confucius, a relatively rational guy, says that this is the sort of thing that um, uh, creates a feedback loop. And Confucius says, Feedback loop goes all the way back up to heaven, that if you screw things up down on earth and you neglect the rituals, the heavens are going to say, well, stop doing that and we'll mess with you until you get a proper uh, set of rituals going again. And that ritual adulation of the of the of the God King, you know, goes almost a straight line 
from ancient Ur all the way up to modern day Pyongyang. And in one hopes more acceptable or more democratic or more genuinely popular forms in the sort of ceremonies that go around the president or whatever. So playing hail to the chief or delivering the state of the union uh, from a podium with all of Congress splayed out below you. These little rituals that we have in democratic societies have in common that same desire to persuade that everything is copacetic and we're all in this together and don't worry, the rain's going to come. Right. So I think we're moving toward a special Ken and Robin definition of propaganda, which is that it's a form of communication that seeks to persuade using the mythic patterns that we are used to responding to in religion. Yes. Or that certainly, uh, I think at its best, it, it tries to do that. Um, we, we have, we, we could do this a lot. I mean, this is a rich, beautiful, meaty topic. Yes. Uh, so perhaps, uh, we will have to postpone, uh, the postmodern stage of propaganda, uh, Mm -hmm. in which, uh, Macedonian teenagers in a completely (laughs) value neutral way are making money from turning uh, things that people want to believe about their U.S. political candidates, uh, and they found one side easier than the other to generate clickbait off of. Uh, I guess that'll have to be another venture into the conspiracy corner in which perhaps we'll start to figure out what that means for whether the membrane is tearing or not. And as we begin to hear the membrane tear, let's quickly move to our next segment. What did Isaac Newton discover in an alternate 1666? He discovered the way that alchemical truths That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 3 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. RunePunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. This episode also brought to you by generous Patreon backers exactly like... Daniel Callahan. Daniel Markwig. Derek McMullen. Eben Lindsay. And Ethan Cordray. The whir of the projector, the smell of popcorn, and the sight of dust motes dancing in the air tell us we've once more entered the dark and beautiful confines of the Cinema Hut. And in the Cinema Hut, projected up on the big screen, is, I think, if I may speak as a cineast and a film critic, all kinds bow craziness. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> I think that's a that's an apt description. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to get too jargony, too technical. Yeah, but Patreon backers Andrew Collins and Adam Grotjan have asked us: Can you speak on the career of Chilean film director Alejandro Jodorowsky and his abortive attempt to adapt Dune? Beyond that, given the ability of his films to drive audiences mad, is he an entity of the outer dark, the Cthulhu mythos, or simply a dream hound? I think that we should classify him, taxonomize him, after we've discussed uh, the aforementioned Bo Crazy. Robin, uh, what's your Jodorowsky take? Um, so uh, Jodorowsky, I think, is a filmmaker who I can appreciate without actually uh, liking that much, <laughs> uh, because my drugs of choice are not the ones required to appreciate his cinema the way that they were originally uh, appreciated. So uh, he creates these sort of, uh, or in his heyday, created these kind of uh, visionary, uh, overtly hallucinatory, uh, only thinly narrative uh, films that are about uh, spectacle and are basically trying to recreate a mystical or shamanic experience. And some of them you could describe as essentially being occult or shamanic rituals. However, for my money, uh, actually watching something that is described as a ritual in a passive way is not a way that I choose to spend my time. So I can appreciate its uh, brilliance without actually enjoying them or feeling that I need to go see more of his uh, films than I already have, because I find them a little slow and and boring in between all the uh, astounding visionary images. If you super cut them down to like 20 minutes, maybe I'd be into that. But uh, 20 minutes is my ceiling for most experimental film. I grant you. Although I got to say, I watched both El Topo and the Holy Mountain and El Topo, possibly because it's more picaresque. I followed and enjoyed more. The Holy Mountain is just straight up. Like you say, it's just a ritual experience. It's literally, the guy goes to the seven layers of heaven. Again, we go all the way back to Babylon. Same deal. Uh, only this time with extra LSD. Fine. The Holy Mountain is, is as you say, just as slow and, and tiresome. El Topo, I think, maybe because he does it earlier. He does it before he took a lot of LSD. But there's more stuff going on. And it's always unpredictable in a way that experimental film so seldom is. Yes, there there is more of a thread to that one. And I think that is that is the one I would recommend people start with. Yeah. Now, I have not seen Santa Sangre. Have you seen that one? That's the only other one of his over that I think I might ever want to watch. I think I've seen that. I've, I've seen El Topo and Holy Mountain, and I his films stick in the mind so distinctly from one another that I'm not sure I remember <laughs> when I gave up on Jodorowsky's Dune. So, uh, this means, in my view, the really great 2014 uh, documentary directed by Frank Pavich called Jodorowsky's Dune is, in fact way more interesting than <laughs> the actual Yodorowsky's Dune would have been had he been able to film it. Uh, because although I am also not a fan of Frank Herbert's Dune, I have to, while I'm comp- confessing, uh, <laughs> while, 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 while I'm on my streak of heresies against nerd culture, <laughs> I, I abandoned that one partway through and, and uh, did not much care for it. But it's obvious that anyone who really loved Dune would have been super annoyed yes. <laughs> by Yodorowsky's uh, would have been a pretty loose adaptation, but hearing him describe it and uh, seeing the 
production art uh, done by Mobius and uh, the process of trying to get this film made and his belief in this film, uh, Yodorowsky is extremely charming as an interview subject and seeing how the big giant comic book storyboard book that went around all the uh, rounds of Hollywood as he tried to uh, get this financed, thinking that it was something Hollywood would ever finance. Then you see all the other films that just swiped different pages from that book uh, quite blatantly and uh, and put them in their own films. Because is, the, the book was drawn by Mobius, right? Yes, so it's yes. super great stuff. And uh, I think Chris Foss painted a lot of the concept art for it. Great, yep. magical 70s artist who's uh, palette has was borrowed for Guardians of the Galaxy and was easily the best thing about that movie was that it borrowed Chris Foss's palette instead of having the industrial dumpster palette of all other science fiction to that point. So uh, have you seen the documentary? Ken? Yes, I did. I, I saw it and I enjoyed it very much. I liked it as a sort of inside, uh, not so much inside Hollywood, inside crazy people near Hollywood. But also, I mean, it's a cast of thousands, right? Because you've got Salvador Dali, apparently agreed to play the emperor, shot on the fourth. Um, and demanded to be the highest paid film actor in history, which Jodorowsky <laughs> figured out if he just meant per minute of film could yep. be done. Uh, Orson Welles was going to be Baron Harkonnen, which I'm, that's the only thing about this movie that I'm angry I didn't get to see is Orson Welles floating around in his grab chair. That would have been great. You've got Pink Floyd doing the music. You've got this great, uh, concept art by, uh, like I said, Chris Foss and Mobius and H.R. Geiger, I think, uh, or Geiger rather began a bunch of, I think that was sort of his first big break was doing all the art for this uh, movie. Mm -hmm. And so and it's why he wound up doing alien. He right. wouldn't have come to the attention of uh, Hollywood without that. Mm -hmm. And, and um, it, there was someone else that's a direct link between this film and alien. Is it O'Bannon that was attached to this movie in some way? I think it was. Uh, I, I I do not recall. Yeah. But anyway, there was someone else who's, who's there's like a really bright line between this and alien. And given that if they'd made Jodorowsky's Dune, they wouldn't have made alien. I'm a thousand percent happy with the result <laughs> because alien is an all time masterpiece. And this would have been as you, as you ever a train wreck and a half, especially if it had stayed 14 hours long, which it wouldn't have, it would have been cut to nothing and been completely unrecognizable. Yes. It, it would have been the most seventies thing, at least for one strain, the trippy strain of the seventies yes. ever made. It, it would have made people say, Oh yeah, David Lynch is doing the normal one. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, now, I guess we now have to move to the, the rest of the question. And so, is Yodorowsky an entity of the outer dark, or, or of the mythos, or simply a dream hound? And I certainly would. Uh, Yodorowsky is extremely charming in the film. and Seems, seems very delightful. Delightful. So, I would not want her to deduce him by implying that he's some sort of extra-dimensional demon or, or thrall to say, and that, that seems unlikely, because uh, and, and unkind. Uh, yeah. he, he's definitely... You know, in the dreamer category, the, in the visionary category. And, uh, you know, sometimes you want a shaman to help you. Right. And, uh, you know, in, in a role-playing game, if you're looking for a modern-day shaman, you know, a Yodorowsky or a, a Yodorowsky with the serial numbers filed off, I think would be a great character to drop in. You know, you're trying to fight the outer dark, and you need to be able to uh, safely perceive uh, the demon world all around you. Well, find Yodorowsky, and he takes you, he's your ayahuasca guide and helps you uh, enter this realm of, of parallel perception. But uh, I think he's definitely here to uh, promote the good kind of awareness, not the awful kind of awareness that uh, melts your brain. Yeah. I think that if, I think that if a monster had followed him out of the, you know, out of the uh, Holy mountain or out of uh, El Topo, 
there'd be, you know, there'd be more deaths and mystery, mysterious weirdness going on around his films. It would be like uh, Juan Lopez Moctezuma, who had all manner of weird stuff that happened after he filmed Alucarda. So if you're looking for a Mexican director, and Rodorowski's Chilean, but he filmed stuff in Mexico. Um, if you're looking for a, a Mexican director who opens up the door to the spirit realm and bad stuff goes through, uh, Moctezuma is your guy. I think Hodorowsky as a dream hound is pretty great that he tries to do something, but he just, it's too big and he, it, it sort of spills out of his arms and out of his eyes and he can't quite control everything. And so all manner of weird stuff is popping out maybe, uh, in the same way that the dream hounds open up the, the door to the, uh, to the dreamlands and wind up ruining things by accident. Uh, the surrealists in dream hounds of Paris available today from Paul Grain press. Um, and then, so that's sort of a, a Jodorowsky, but I like the notion that he's, he's your, he's your, he's your guide. He's your spirit animal and he's there to, to frame the shot and let you see the weirdness. And hopefully when all is done, uh, and you've got your knowledge, he'll call cut and you can back on out of there with only the sight of weird dwarves drinking blood and wearing purple robes or whatever. We uh, have a few more minutes left in this segment. So why don't you give people a bit more of a background on Alucarda and its director and the weirdness that follows? Okay. Um, Alucarda is a crossover between Carmilla, the La Fanu novella, and basically the nuns of Loudon story that became The Devils, which is a famously hard-to-find Ken Russell film. And so it's got a pair of, of, of ladies who meet in a uh, straightened circumstances, in this case in a convent, uh, and they fall for each other, and one of them is full of devil and brings in the devils to the other ones, and there's vampires and blood and all kinds of craziness and exorcisms and uh, elderly priests who are brought in to discover all this horror going on in a convent. And it's very, very weird and very, very trippy and just phenomenally shot. There's just some great tableaus in the movie. And then Moctezuma moves the camera and you're like, oh, well, that was a mistake. But, uh, and the acting is, is crazy histrionic. It's very much in that style of, of, uh, of, of dramatic acting. But the result of the movie is that, uh, when he was filming it, a, uh, there, there, there was a fire, the big climactic end of the movie. They set the convent on fire and everyone's running around. And one of the actresses died in that movie when they were setting things on fire. A piece of burning stuff fell on her and she died. And these two weird, I think I can say weird, super fans of Moctezuma began getting phone calls from a woman who called herself, I think it was Francesca, uh, telling them that Moctezuma needed their help and he needed to be rescued from this uh, insane asylum where he had been checked in or had deliberately checked himself into in Pasadena and they needed to go get him out of it. And Moctezuma's career after making Alucarda sort of he went into TV and then the TV gigs fell apart and his life started to fall apart and he got divorced and all manner of bad things started happening to him. And then he winds up in this uh, mental hospital and his two crazy fans kidnap him from the mental hospital. He apparently has forgotten who he is. He's forgotten everything. They show him his old movies and he, then he begins taking them around to the places that he filmed them and his personality starts to come back and the movie's just really weird and really messed up because the two weirdos are not hilarious, fun, you know, 80s movie weirdos. They're genuine weirdos. They're, you know, very much of the demimonde, of the borderline, criminal, bad scene underworld, as well as being desperately wronged by, you know, uh, society and their own self-images. And so the, uh, the, 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 the movie, the, the documentary about this, which is called Alucardos, is super interesting and super terrifying. 
especially because when it ends, it's like, well, that's it. That's the end of the story. And everything you just know got worse off screen. But we're done now. Right. And uh, <laughs> you said the word interesting again. So let's go to another segment. <laughs> Delta Green, the ultra-covert, some might say rogue, intelligence agency that battles the cosmic forces of the Cthulhu mythos, is once again recruiting. You might say they have a high churn rate, but that's neither here nor there. What is both here and there is the Delta Green Agent's Handbook and Delta Green Need to Know, the quick start rules with scenario and very sturdy handler screen, are both in stores now from Arc Dream Publishing. The Agent's Handbook netted five stars in 29 out of 29 reviews on Amazon, and one silver for best supplement at the Annie's. It features all the rules you need to play your shadow war against Nierlathotep and company. Includes substantial chapters on tradecraft. And insider profiles of U.S. federal agencies and special forces. Useful in any game that features covert action. But especially useful when you join Delta Green. Looking for a few good people. And probably a few more good people after that. It's time once again to creak our way up the cobweb stairs, uh, genuflect to the glowering portrait of Madame Vlatsky, who's at the frame of the portrait is getting smaller and smaller and trapping her inside it, which is maybe something we need to work no. on another day. But, oh, look, there's a consulting cultist. He's in his parlor, and he's going to tell us about Lévalur. Ken, I've been researching the Parisian occultists of the Belle Epoque. This jumps us ahead another uh, generation to the... Uh, uh, final days of uh, World War One, when Les Valeurs, are, or the Watchers, are uh, founded in Paris. So, uh, Ken, who were Les Valeurs, and what were they valeuring? One of the things about Les Valeurs is that they are not just Watchers, they are the Vigilant, and the connection between Vigilant and Vigilante is not accidental, I suspect, in this case, either. So they're not like your big-headed Marvel Watcher no. who uh, has a supposed hands-off policy and then intervenes wildly in superhero affairs. They're not like the the uh, the egregores who mystically watch. They are the people on the ground who keep watch and keep their eye on you. Uh, they were created by a fellow named René Schwaller. And René Schwaller was born in uh, Alsace, and he was a French occultist. He was into sacred geometry and theosophy and the synarchy, which I believe we've discussed previously, of Saint-Yves d'Alvedre. And in 1917, 1918, as World War I is grinding to its messy and horrible conclusion, he sets up a sort of a discussion group to talk about things, which, according to him, just magically always was talking about mysticism, despite his very best efforts to get it to talk about literally anything else. You believe that or not? That happens in like half of all Slack channels. It too. does. It does. So if you are in a Slack with René Schwaller, that'll happen. One of the people he was talking to was a Lithuanian mystic and diplomat named Oskar Vladislas de Lubich Milos, who loved René Schwaller and his mysticism so much that he, I don't know if he technically adopted him or just gave him the right to bear the name de Lubich. 
So he is generally known as R.A. Schwaller de Lubitsch. And if you were looking for his later books, that is how you find him is as Schwaller de Lubitsch. But uh, he also used the name Aor, which is faster to write than Schwaller de Lubitsch. Right. Anyway, um, he founded uh, this sort of uh, chatting group in 1917-1918. By 1919, he has named it Les Velours, and it has two journals, Le Velour, The Watcher, and La Franchie, which is about the, the people who are franchised together, right? The people who gum up together. And their motto was Hierarche Fraternite Liberté. So not Egalité, Hierarche. Oh. And that is because they are into the synarchy, which we have discussed previously, the occult organization of society. Right. Um, Le Velour is the synarchist group that Schwaller starts. It had a very bad attitude about the Jews. Um, Aor wrote uh, letters to uh, Le Velour's magazine that sort of laid out what he thought. And one of his letters was called Jews Go Home, which is kind of a rotten thing to say. I, I think that's, uh, I think we can say anti-Semitic. I think we absolutely can say that. And he uh, designed uh, outfits for Le Velour's, which involved jackboots and uh, brown shirts. And, and perhaps uh, those are indicative as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, yeah. Speaking yes. of things that are not in the news currently. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, well, alchemy. Alchemy's not in the news. There you go. Right? And he had alchemists in his group, so it's not all anti-Semitism and marching around. There's also alchemy. Right. But but if someone comes up to me in the street and goes, I'm an alchemist and an anti-Semite, one of those is going to be more memorable. Yeah, than you're really going to emphasize B, not A. I absolutely say that's legit. Um, he does seem to have the capacity to attract uh, the wives of rich people, which is a very useful skill. Um, and uh, he even again, something that goes through the history of the occult. <laughs> yes. And I think it's really the second thing you learn. You, you learn that stare and then how to attract the wives of rich people. Right. One of them, Jean Germain, who was the wife of a shipping magnate named George Lamy, um, uh, eventually married him she, uh, when uh, George died. She didn't divorce him. We don't know that it was murder. Um, <laughs> She, she marries him in, uh, 1927 and takes the magic name Isha and then follows him around, uh, to Egypt and other places like that. Um, there are, um, sort of other rich people. Uh, Schwaller seems to have a certain gift for investments or possibly knowing a bunch of rich people. He was really good at insider trading. Hard to say. Uh, journalists, astrologers, um, Camille Flammarion, who is an astronomer who is literally into every occult group in France. Uh, if you are an occult group and you didn't get Camille Flammarion to give you a, an RSVP, you are doing it wrong. Right. And, and he crosses a generation. He's, yes. he's still a figure back in the Belle Epoque as well. And there's a writer named Le Charpentier, or Le Charpentier, Le Charpentier, who is big on, I think megaliths is his thing. Um, Henri Postel Dumas, who is a occultist of various sorts. And then, um, a bunch of other people, uh, George Pulte, who shows up later on in the, uh, Priory of Sion gang and, uh, other folks like that. And, uh, uh, Fernand Leger, the, the artist, uh, uh, an experimental filmmaker right. who is famous for these sort of, uh, uh, biomorphic technological, uh, paintings of people morphing into machines. So you get the connection to futurism, which is another uh, proto-fascist or fascist uh, uh, stream of uh, art expression. Yes, we should also mention that René Schwaller was a, a student of Matisse. He studied under Matisse as a painter. So that's more things. And he later set up a, a laboratory where he made ceramics. And so he used his alchemical powers to make ceramics and glass. And that uh, he's selling the ceramics and glass is what paid for a lot of his other activities. So 
There you go. That's don't let mom say that alchemy is useless. Um, I'm sure it gives you exciting firing patterns, right. and uh, uh, I mean regular chemistry might do that too. But yes, well, know, but alchemy not makes it not more exciting. fun. Uh, so what becomes of this movement? Uh, well, it it falls apart basically when he moves to Switzerland in 1922. He keeps it going for a while. I think that he sort of sees that the the chance of him becoming Synarchic Fuhrer of France is, is nil and uh, gives up on it. And he goes to live among the sensible Swiss. Right. And, and that uh, presumably uh, reduces his access to people who want to hang out with uh, alchemical anti-Semites. Yes. Well, I mean, it, it changes it up because the, this, when the Swiss show up, the t- talk doesn't go to mysticism. They want to talk about banking. They want to talk about chocolate, cuckoo clocks. Anti-Semitism is, you know, fourth on the list, if that. So he, I think, recognizes that, you know, it, it was it was fun while it lasted. Like, you know, he, he's a successful mystic, and so he knows when to leave people wanting more. One of the people he left wanting more may have been, there is no evidence for this, but no less a scholar than Jocelyn Godwin repeats it, so I call it gospel <laughs> truth. Um, uh, Rudolf Hess may have been a velour in 1919. We don't know what Rudolf Hess was up to in that uh, year of years. He was wandering around, but if you are an anti-Semite who dressed in a brown shirt and goose stepped around, perhaps you had Rudolf Hess pay attention to you. Um, he was, uh, born in Alexandria, Egypt. He had a mystical bent from, a from, from youth. He was one of the crazier Nazis and, uh, he may or may not have brought a little of that velour feel to this Sturmab Teilung when he helped set it up in the 1920s in Germany. So, uh, this raises a question. We've got, uh, presumably, some of his ceramics uh, still exist. So, I assume in, so. In, in a modern-day occult game, uh, if you uh, have an adventure that centers around a, a velour ceramic, or a Schwaller ceramic, as... as Suhalia is what it would be called, because that's the name of his uh, little compound. Because if you say velour ceramic, people will think it's fuzzy. Yes, exactly. And that, that was a pun that I am proud to have resisted earlier when we were talking about velour brown shirts. Is that what your is that is that that's where your pride comes from, right there? I take my pride <laughs> where I can get it. That's yes. fair enough. Anyways, Anyways what uh, what powers does this uh, mystical uh, ceramic uh, pot or ashtray happen to have? Well, I think it it reveals things, right? It's visionary. You're les velours. You're watching. You're watching stuff. So I think that the mystical pot or ashtray it might have. It might just be a straight-up magic mirror. You gaze into it, and you see what you're looking to see. You might see what your enemies are up to. You might see ancient Egypt. Um, our buddy Schwaller was big into ancient Egypt, thought it was the bomb. Maybe you make alchemical things in it, and when you do them in this glassware, in this pot, it gets magicked in a way that it would not if you are just pouring mercury and stuff in any old piece of cookware. Right, but you have to take what you see through it. With a grain of salt, because the ceramic is an anti-Semite. Right. Yes, it is. It's an, it's an anti-Semitic ceramic. And so, it, yeah, that's another thing, is that it might be one of those uh, things that it, what it reveals to you might or might not be true, a la propaganda, but it is always what will advance the cause of the synarchy. So if you've got nine enemies who are plotting your death, it'll show you the Jewish enemy you have who's plotting your death. And you're, and it'll say, whoa, I'm not saying, but I'm just saying. And that is, is how the ceramic will try and sort of guide you to actions that will advance the cause of Le Velour, even in, uh, the, the modern time. So this might be this kind of MacGuffin that our heroes want to go and smash and get away from, uh, remove from the custody of the, uh, synarchists that they're battling. Right. Yeah. The synarchists would use it to be guided to, uh, investment opportunities and, and, uh, knowledge of ancient Egypt PowerPoints. 
but uh, you want to get it away. But before you smash it, you're holding it up to smash it, and in the bo- in the bottom of the bowl, you can see the reflection of something that you really wanted to know. And now it's like, oh man, do I smash it? Or do I keep the thing around and listen to it? Because perhaps it has good advice for me. And I'm sure I can, you know, apply the necessary negative modifier to what the what it's telling me about uh, Jews and whatnot, and I won't believe it on that. You, you, can just, you can just argue with it at Thanksgiving. Exactly right. You can you can, can carry it around and argue with it and say, "What about Mendelssohn?" For gosh sakes. Yeah. Uh, well, you, you could certainly practice your arguments on it before. Yes, uh, right. Be- before going on Twitter. Actually, I advise everyone to do that. Argue with ceramics before you go on Twitter. Yes. If it sounds convincing coming back out of a bowl, then maybe try it. If the, if the ceramics <laughs> start saying, oh, you know what? Uh, bigotry is bad for my brand. Well, actually. I want to emphasize the alchemy part more. I want to emphasize that it's made with Egyptian wisdom and yeah. alchemical love. Um, so do Levelure appear in pop culture at all? Or are these uh, uh, relatively unplumbed sources of uh, occult craziness for our games and stories? I think they are super, super obscure uh, by and large. I mean, I use them because of the whole Rudolf Hess and alchemy and synergy. I mean, it's like someone made something up just for me. But I don't think that they It, it sh- does hit the Ken Height demographic pretty hard. It does really hit the Ken Height de- demographic pretty hard. Um, I don't think that there's an awful lot about um, uh, I mean, there's not even an awful lot about poor uh, Schwaller in your magic world. He seems it to have hard sort of, to Google. I have he, to say. He's, he's dripped. He's uh, drifted off the uh, the radar, possibly because he went to Luxor and didn't get into any more trouble, which is you know ideal. You know, if you're going to be a magical anti-Semite, going to Egypt and shutting up about it is the second best thing that can happen to you. I think that the the thing about Levelleurs is also that if you're in 1919 and you're looking for magical weirdos, your attention is so going to be drawn to the Thule Bruderschaft over there or the Thule Gazelleschaft over there in Bavaria that you're just not going to be paying attention to these uh, goofballs in Paris. Yes, it, it's an, uh, certainly a period of Parisian history that uh, I have yet to explore. Uh, but uh, listeners, they, they are uh, beckon you in all of their uh, ceramic uh, crankery. So uh, I think we've uh, successfully, uh, without the aid of an anti-Semitic ashtray, seen our future. And our future is that we will be back next week with another exciting episode. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Askfagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. Impro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Join such mighty feud patrons as... Garrett Fitzgerald. Jan Poshpashil. Jeff Cars, Jean-Francois Parody, and Joe Literal. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>